and we're extremely excited about uh, getting a new pastor here at Discovery. Guys, I, my name is Kevin. I am part of the teaching team here. And over the last year, I've really enjoyed the opportunity to be up here on Sundays every couple months and to preach. Uh, but I'm really excited to not do that anymore when, it, when a new guy steps up. Uh, I am fully intending this summer to sign up for kids ministry and uh, give this preaching thing a break. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm stoked. I, I think it's clear that the Lord's been at work, and I'm really excited to see who he brings here. Well, church, uh, as Tom mentioned, oh, I'm being waved. The kids, uh, youth, you are dismissed. That was, that was my job. I already botched it. See, that's why we need a pastor, guys. This is somebody who's actually trained in this stuff. Guys, we are, are two weeks out from Easter, uh, and as a church, we are beginning to shift our focus uh, from the book of Philippians to look at the person and story of Jesus. But as we kind of finished up Philippians as a teaching team, we we're like, man, eight weeks in Philippians was good, but there's so much depth to this book, and it feels like we missed some of it. It feels like we, we passed over a few things too quickly. So what we decided to do is for the next two weeks before Easter, we're going to go back to Philippians, specifically Philippians chapter 2. And what we're going to do is we're going to shift from Philippians to looking at Jesus as he's portrayed in Philippians 2. So that's where we'll be this morning. I'll be in Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. And then next week, Jeff's going to come finish off verses 5 through 11, looking at Jesus. Now, if you don't have a Bible, uh, would you please throw up a hand? Uh, there are Bibles. Uh, some of our, our team here will get those to you. If you don't own a Bible, this is yours. We want you to have it. We want you to be able to follow along, read with us, read on your own. Now, guys, I, I want to give two quick caveats before we go too much further. I, I, say, I think I say this every time that I get up here, but, but I, I think it's true. Uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 4 is a very, very important passage of Scripture. Uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 11 is a really important piece of Scripture. It's one of those passages that's worth studying again and again. It's worth committing to memory. It's that important. And I think it has a profound effect on us when we grasp it and when we begin to live it out. So it's important. I also want to say my second caveat is this week I have struggled with how to preach this passage. Uh, the teaching team knows. I, I've written like 50 outlines, thrown them all out, started over, gone back. I, I just, for some reason, I don't think it's a confusing passage. I, I just think it's important, and I've, I've struggled with how to, how to present it to you. And so I think I say that as a, a caveat just for you guys to know that uh, even if I don't communicate it as clearly as I would like, Maybe if I don't impress upon you the importance of it, I want you to know that it is important, and I hope it comes through for you this morning. Now, spoiler alert, we are celebrating Easter. Uh, if you didn't know this, Jesus, as we will see, uh, he does die, but he does also raise from the dead. Um, hopefully that's not a surprise to you guys. And we are now living in, in Philippians and today in light of Jesus' death and resurrection. And so in Philippians 2, we're looking at how do we live our lives in light of what Jesus has done. So I'm going to pray before we go any further, and then we'll read together Philippians 2, 
one through four. God, I thank you that this morning is not about me, but it is about you, and it is about your son, Jesus. It is about what he did on our behalf. It is about how his death and resurrection transforms our lives, transforms the way we live. God, this morning is about your word to us. So I, I pray, Lord, especially for our students who are uh, already right now thinking about finals, who are stressed, they're worried about those, who are tired from studying. Uh, I pray for the rest of us who, who come in to this Sunday morning with baggage from the week, with concerns and worries and stresses and fears, frustrations. God, I pray for all of those things. Would you allow us to put them to the side this morning? Holy Spirit, would you protect our minds and our hearts? Would you direct our gaze and our attention to you through your word? And God, would you communicate something to us this morning? God, would you communicate something to me this morning? Would you help us to live in light of what Jesus has done for us? God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Philippians 2, 1 through 4, Paul says this. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We're going to walk through a little slowly. Jeff preached on this passage about a month and a half ago, and I'm going to reference some of the things that he said, but we're going to go a little bit more in depth, look at what do each of these phrases and words mean. And the first thing we have to notice is in verse 1, he says, if. Paul, Paul is setting up an if-then statement. In verse 1, he says, if these things are true of you. In verse 2, then these things should be true of you as well. So what is the if? Well, in verse 1, he describes a few things that are true of them because they are Christian. Okay, so essentially that's what he's saying. In verse 1, he's saying, if you are Christians. Look what he says. He says, are you encouraged by Christ? Does Jesus motivate you? Has his, his life and his death and his resurrection and his teaching, has it transformed the way that we live? So you know, someone might say, yeah, my, my parents really encouraged me to go into medicine. Or I had a, a professor who encouraged me to get into teaching. Or my doctor encouraged me to start exercising more and eating healthier. To, to be encouraged is to be stimulated to action. I wasn't doing something, I wasn't thinking about something, and then I was encouraged to do so. So Paul's saying, are you encouraged by Christ? Does Christ motivate you, stimulate you to action? Second, he says, are you comforted by love? Now, most commentators would say that this, what Paul is saying here, he's talking about the love of God. So he's saying, are you comforted by God's love. And I'll explain why they think that in a second. 
But does the fact that God, who created everything that we see, who knows everything that we've ever done or, or thought, who holds our very life in his hands, does the fact that this God loves you comfort you? Or as Psalm 90 verse 14 says, does it satisfy you? Does the love of God bring contentment and joy so that when you think about it, when you think about the love that God has for you, the worries of this world fade away? Third, he says, do you, do you have participation in the Spirit? Literally what he's saying here is, do you share with each other in the things of the Spirit? Are you participating together in the things of the Spirit? Do you go to church? Do you worship God together? Do you discuss the scriptures together? Do you pray as a family, as a discovery group? The Spirit's job is to point us to Jesus, to open our eyes and to teach us to pray. And to participate with those things is to simply walk in them together. And what, what Paul is doing here, what he's just done in these first three clauses, is he has described somebody who has been impacted by the God of the Trinity, right? So he says, are you encouraged by Jesus? And this is why commentators assume that he's talking about God's love, because here we have encouraged by Jesus, comforted by God's love, and participating in the Spirit. This is a, a person who has been transformed by all that God has done and is doing towards them, for them. Right? To be a Christian isn't to do something. It is to respond to what has been done for you. In the notes, I put it this way. To be a Christian is to be transformed by the gospel. To be transformed by what God has done for us. To be encouraged by what Christ has done. To be comforted from his love. And then to participate in the things of the Spirit. To be a Christian means that you know that you are a sinner to know that there is nothing you can do to get right with God, and to believe that Jesus was who he said he was and did what he said he did. And we're going to talk a lot about this on Easter. Did Jesus actually do these things, and what does that mean for us? According to 2 Corinthians 5.17, those who are in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come, meaning that who we once were is no longer who we are. We have been transformed, made new. Lastly, in verse 1, he says, is there any affection and sympathy? Now, he's switching a little bit. So first he's talking about, have you responded to the things God has done for you? And then he says, how do you feel about me, Paul? Now, this is simply a practical issue. So Paul comes to Philippi, preaches the gospel uh, at his own expense and to his own harm, sees this church get started, and, and really gives his life for this church. And we've seen how much he loves them in the letter of, to the Philippians. And so he's saying, man, if you've been transformed by the gospel that, that I, I brought to you guys, that I gave my life to share with you, do you have any love and sympathy for me? And what he's trying to do here is he's trying to use every available means to motivate them for what he's going to say in verse 2. 
He's saying, guys, if you've been transformed by God, and if that's not enough, just in case that's not enough, you have love for me. Would you do it for me who gave so much for you? So if you've been transformed by the gospel, by God's love for you, and if you love me, Philippian church, and there's, there's something I want you guys to do. In verse 2, we see the then of the if-then statement. Paul says, if this is true of you, then pursue unity. Pursue unity. Verse 2 says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, this, this, shouldn't, this shouldn't come as a shock to us. This is a theme that Paul has uh, spread throughout the whole letter to the Philippians. And, and honestly, you, unity is a buzzword. We, we all know that we're supposed to be unified. Unity, I would even argue, is probably a, a, a cultural fad right now. It's, it's cool to be unified. It's cool to be about unity. Paul says in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 27, he says that he wants to hear that they are standing firm in one spirit. And then a couple weeks ago, Paul talked about chapter 4, verse 2, where Paul very specifically calls out these two women in the church, and he says, hey, I, I want you guys to agree in the Lord. Okay, so Paul wants the Philippian church to be unified. And God absolutely wants our church, Discovery Christian Church, to be unified. Well, what does that mean, though? How, how do we know? Like, are, are we unified right now? Do we have unity in the church? What, what would that look like? What's the, the measure for that? Paul gives us a few clues here in, this, in verse 2. First, he says that we must have a, a mutual love for one another. So when Paul says that they should have the same love, he's talking about the, the same love for each other as a body, as a church, as a family. I, I meant to write this in the notes, but it, it is impossible to have unity without true love. It's impossible to have unity without true love for one another. Uh, anybody who is married understands this. Because unity is hard, even between two people. Because I'm a sinner, and my wife is a sinner. That might come as a shock to some of you. And uh, we have different opinions sometimes. And I can't read her mind, try as I might. And she doesn't understand why I'm so opinionated and stubborn sometimes. And unity is hard. But we pursue it, we work on it, because of the mutual love that we have for each other. Because of the same love that I have for her and that she has for me. Unity is built on this mutual love that we have for one another. If, if we as a church learn to love each other, we will do whatever it takes to find unity out of our love for each other. So he says there needs to be the same love, but then look at a full accord that we should have the same mind and be in full accord and have one mind. What, what he's saying is this. He's saying as Christians, as a church, all of us, need to collectively set our minds on the same thing. That we should be pursuing the same goal. One vision, one goal. All of us setting our minds. One collective mind. 
what is it, Paul? What, what do you want us to set our minds on? What is this one vision that you want us to have? What is the one goal that we should work for? Guys, in the course of this letter and in the course of all of Paul's writings, I don't think it's really hard to know what Paul's after. I don't think it's hard for us to see what he wants us to set our mind on. Just look at just three verses from Philippians, not to mention all the other epistles that he wrote. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 11. He's praying for the church, and he prays that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In chapter 2, at the end of this section in verse 11, he says that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In in chapter 4, verse 20, he concludes the letter and he says, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Guys, the thing that is most on Paul's mind is that Jesus Christ would be known in his fullness and that God would be glorified in all things. The thing that Paul is most concerned with is that through Jesus, God would get all of the credit and the fame and the glory that God would be made much of in all that we do. This is what he wants for them. This is when he says, have the same mind. What he's saying is, put God first. All of you as individuals and collectively as a church, put God first. To pursue unity is to pursue the glory of God. Uh, author, Pastor A.W. Tozer has this beautiful quote that when I heard it, uh, gosh, it must have been six or seven years ago, has forever changed the way that I thought about unity. He says this, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ and in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Unity doesn't come as we pursue unity. Unity comes as we pursue Christ. Unity is when all of us get tuned to the same tuning fork that we all want the same thing, that God would be glorified. And to make this, again, there's, there's a lot in Scripture about this. I want to share one more verse to just try to make this clear. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Think about how that would look if everybody in this church did everything for the glory of God. No matter how many differences I might have with somebody, no matter how different our personalities or our upbringings or our backgrounds, if you're doing everything in your life for the glory of God and I'm doing everything in my life for the glory of God, we're going to have a lot in common. I think we're going to work pretty well together. That's how unity comes, when all of us are tuned to the same tuning fork. 
what Paul is saying so far in verses 1 and 2, he's saying if you are a Christian, if you've been transformed by the gospel, then learn to corporately pursue the glory of God. And then in verses 3 and 4, he answers the question, well, how do we do that? How practically, what does that look like in our day-to-day lives? And again, guys, we're, we're a pretty different group. We're a pretty diverse group. I look, at, I look at this room, and I know there's ethnicity differences, background and cultural differences. I know that there's political differences that we're afraid to talk about, languages, cultures, opinions. And, and it'd be really easy to look at each other and to think, what hope do we have of ever being unified? What hope do we ever have of having one mind? How could we really learn to work together? And the answer that Paul gives in verses 3 and 4 is humility. That we are going to attain unity through humility. Verses 3 and 4, he says this. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So how do we have one mind? How do we collectively pursue the glory of God as a church? Through humility. And Paul's very clear uh, about what he means by humility. And Jeff did a great job a couple weeks ago. And I'm going to refer back to some of the things that he said about humility. Because I promise you guys, the world does not understand true humility. Most of what I read about humility in a non-Christian setting is, is not actually the humility that God talks about here. First, look at the enemy of true humility here. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Guys, that verse alone should challenge us. That verse challenges me. Every time I read that, I have to ask, is there anything that I'm doing in my life that is out of selfish ambition or conceit? This verse means that we need to evaluate everything that we do in light of who it's for and ask, am I doing this for myself out of selfish ambition? Our jobs, our hobbies, our free time, our weekends. When Paul says do everything for the glory of God in, in 1031, 1 Corinthians 1031, he, he means everything. When Paul says do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, he means do nothing out of those things. Selfish ambition and conceit say this. They say, not God's glory, but my glory. Not God's well-being, but my well-being. Not his name, but my name, my desires, my will, my kingdom. And Paul says, if you want to be unified, you can't live that way. There's no room for unity when selfish ambition and conceit are the motivating factors in your life. In humility, we have to consider others more significant than ourselves. And he's, he's clarifying what humility looks like here. Now, Considering others as more significant than ourselves, it's not an issue of value. Okay? He's not saying that, wow, that person is worth more than me. It's not an issue of value. It's an issue of priority. 
And let, let me explain what I mean here. Okay, so uh, GR is here today, and for me to consider GR as like more significant than myself, it doesn't mean that I compare myself to him. Man, like I'm never gonna be as good as GR. I'm never gonna be as successful. I'm never gonna be as good as a father of him. He's just better than me. That's not what he's talking about here. Although that might be true. <laughs> instead, instead, it means that I acknowledge my needs, my desires, my strengths, my weaknesses, my desires, my wants, but I choose him first. I choose to put him as a higher priority than me. His desires, his needs, his wants as higher priority than mine. Thanks, you are. To be humble is to count others as more significant than yourself and to die to self. To be humble is to die to self. And Jeff did a great job of this. Uh, he shared a quote from C.S. Lewis. He said, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Okay, I'm going to use Davis students as an example here because I have met some really smart Davis students. And oftentimes I'll be in conversation with them and, and talking about their GPA or how many AP tests they had. Uh, and they, they almost try to talk it down as if they're not actually that smart. Guys, humility isn't trying to convince yourself that you're not smart. So if you're, if you're really smart, if God has gifted you intellectually and you try to convince me that you're not smart, that's not humility. That's just lying. You're, you're just trying to deceive me into who you really, from who you really are. It's not humility. Think about it this way. Imagine that the spotlight is on you, okay, kind of like this one is on me. A lot of times we think of humility as trying to dim the spotlight. So, wow, the spotlight's on me. Look at me, look at me. Let's look at me a little bit less. You know, maybe, maybe I'm not as bright as it seems. Real humility, though, is taking the spotlight off of ourselves completely and putting it on somebody else. It's shifting the focus away from self and onto God and onto others. It's acknowledging who we are. You don't have to hide the fact that you're good at something. You don't have to hide the fact that you're smart. You don't have to hide the fact that God has created you to be handsome or beautiful. That's not humility. Humility is, is acknowledging those things and shifting the focus away from them, putting the focus on others. When we stop focusing on ourselves, focus on God. And, and Paul doesn't intend for this to be just a hypothetical idea. Okay, this, this, isn't, this isn't just like a change in our attitude or the way that we think, although it is a change in our attitude. It's not just that. Because in verse 4, he gets very, very practical. He gets very practical. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So if you're wondering, well, what does it look like for me to count others as more significant than myself? Here it is. Look out for them, not just for yourself. And I, I want to do kind of a quick thought experiment. I was trying to figure out, I wrestled with this a lot this week. How do, how do I illustrate this? What does this look like? So I want to do a quick thought experiment. It might, it might work, it might not. Um, no need to take notes here. Just stop and, and think for a second. I want you to think about your interests this morning. So think about work. 
maybe the projects that you have to do, your various responsibilities, your to-do list. Think about your house, your chores, the things on your to-do list that you, that you keep meaning to get to. Think about the finals that you have to take and how much or how little you haven't studied for them. Think about your hobbies, the things that you'd like to accomplish, the things that you wish you were doing right now. Think about the books that you're reading and, and what you're hoping to learn from them. Think about your, your personality. Think about your Myers-Briggs or your Strength Finders or your Enneagram or whatever your animal spirit thing. <laughs> Think about your strengths and your weaknesses and your flaws. Think about your fears and your hopes, your deepest longings and your darkest desires. Think about all of these things that pertain to you. These are your interests. Now, I want you to look at the person sitting next to you. What are their interests? What, what are the things that matter to them? What are their longings? What are their darkest desires and fears? Have you ever asked them? Do you, do you love them enough to remember what they said? Now, look at the people in this room. Look at your friends your discovery group, maybe your extended family, your elders, leaders, or coworkers. What about them? How, of how many people could you say that you even know what their interests are so that you can look out for them, and not just your own? How, how many of them would you say that you count more significant than yourself? Church, I, I think we have a lot to do to grow in this area. I think I have a lot to do to grow in this area. Because when I, when I come to church on Sunday morning, I'm thinking about me. I'm thinking about the things that I have to do today. I'm thinking about my to-do list. I'm thinking about my desires. I'm thinking about my week and all the baggage that I bring into this Sunday morning. We need to learn to, to, to count others as more significant than ourselves. Where, where do we start I want, I want to give us some handles to hold on to. I want to give us some touch points to work with, to, to learn how to take the spotlight off of ourselves and to, to put it on others. And so I would say start with your family. So if, if you're married this morning, if you have kids, start by looking out for their interests. If you need to make it more manageable or, or more attainable, uh, start with this. Every day, say, what's one thing that I could do to take the spotlight off of myself? What's one thing I could do to meet his or her needs, to look out for their interests and not just my own? What would it look like for me to die to myself and put them first today? And then think about your discovery group or your, your friends that you come to church with. What, what would it look like this week for us to die to ourselves and to put them first? Maybe it's time. Maybe you can move around your schedule so that you can get lunch with somebody this week that you've been meaning to check in on. Maybe it's money. Maybe they need a little bit of extra help with the bills this month. Or maybe you have a, a gift that you think would mean a lot to them. Maybe it's discipleship. Maybe there's somebody in church here with you that, that you know they want to they learn more about following Jesus. And you know that you have some things that you could teach them. What would it look like for you to help them? To pursue them, to put their interests above your own this week? Guys, we need to learn to notice the needs of others and to get in the habit of doing what is in our power to meet those needs.
this is the, the, the unity that Paul is, is aiming for. This is the unity that he wants us to have. And guys, think about this just for a second. How amazing would it be if in a couple months we have a pastor step into this church and he finds a group that has a love for each other that causes us to put each other above ourselves? Oh man, I'd be excited to lead that church. I'd be excited to step into that church. Guys, I think if we've heard Paul correctly, we, we should probably be feeling a little bit heavy right now. Again, every time I read this passage, I, I wrestle with it. And, and what does this look like in my life? This is a tall task for us. And so there, there are ways, I know, that we try to justify ourselves out of this. There are, are ways that we try to make this text a little bit easier to swallow. Make it easier than, than what it really is. Or, or maybe, maybe we're worried. Maybe we think, man, if I spend the rest of my life looking out for others, who's going to look out for me? That's a good question. And you should wrestle with that at some point. That means you're understanding Paul correctly. If you're worried about what happens to you when you live this out, it means you've heard him correctly. And guys, this, this is a, a two-part talk, so next week we're going to talk about this more, but I can't leave you without looking at verses 5 through 11. And we'll end with this. This is the source of our humility. Is this really what Paul's asking us to do? Is he really asking me to die to myself and live for others and count them as more significant than myself? The answer is yes. Because look at what Jesus did in verses 5 through 11. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under an earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you're tempted to ask, well, where's the line? When do I stop looking out for others and start looking out for myself? You ask, well, where was the line for Jesus? He humbled himself to the point of death. You see, Jesus never asked us to do anything for others that he didn't do for us. Jesus did nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, he considered us as more significant than himself, and he looked out for our interests and not his own. <laughs> and as exalted Lord, he asks us to do the same for each other. Let me pray. God, I recognize that uh, this is a, a sometimes hard to swallow. It's hard to evaluate my life in light of what Paul writes to the Philippian church. It's hard to evaluate my life in, in light of the example of Jesus. 
But God, I believe that you're calling us to unity as a church. I believe that you're calling us to humility towards one another. I believe that that is exactly what Jesus did for us, and that as we learn to do it for each other, that we will be living the life that you have for us, that we will be the church that you want us to be. And God, far from being discouraging or despairing or hopeless, I pray that this passage would give us great hope. I pray, Lord, that you would teach every one of us to love each other, to love one another, and to, to, to count each other as more significant than ourselves. And I pray that with that, there would be great joy. God, I pray that this church would be a beacon of hope to a world that does not understand humility, that does not understand love. God, would you make us be your church, representing the glory of God here on earth. God, we, we are so grateful for what you've done for us. Through your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.